welcome to episode 12 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, I'm going to talk about Super Freak by Rick James and what I consider to be an unexpected moment in the main riff. I also want to give a warning about what I consider to be scam lessons or tutorials or courses that I've been seeing advertisements for through various outlets, but especially on YouTube. I also want to discuss how using forms can really assist your improvisations, not just in the sense of looking at song forms, but also using forms to structure an outline for us to then improvise freely over. Lastly, I'm going to talk about some of my favorite musical accessories. If you're digging the podcast, please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you care to do so, write a review. If you have any questions or topics that you might want to be covered in future podcasts, you can reach out to me at anatomyofguitartone.com. I have a contact tab there in the menu and you'd be able to reach out. Also, I'll have been updating my blog on Anatomy of Guitar Tone. If you go into the menu and find Anatomy of Tone, I often put uh, some of the lesson materials in there. or I'll even put links in there regarding some of the gear that I used in this podcast. So for instance, with the accessories, I'll have a link to each of the musical accessories so you can check out. Let's jump right in. A couple of weeks ago, I was playing a gig with some friends and they called out the song Super Freak from Rick James, which was released in either 1980 or 1981. One of the things I like to do is to to look at songs that were big hits because I think one thing that happens over time is that we start to depreciate their value. I think because sometimes we've overheard them and we're kind of sick of them and we take them for granted. There's actually often some really cool techniques or ideas in these songs. So what I want to talk about this week with Super Freak is, um, to my ears, what's a surprise that happens in the verse. So if we think about the verse, we really are, are, are kind of playing around with a, a D to an A minor to a G to an A, right? A minor again. So in my mind, even though we're starting on the D chord, we're, we're sitting around A minor a lot, and I'm really hearing that as being a Dorian because we have that F sharp in it. So that's what I'm thinking. But what happens is that when we go to the second half of the verse, we're going to jump out of Dorian a little bit because we're actually going to go from this D major chord, A minor, to an F major, to an A minor. So all of a sudden, we're actually in what would be a Aeolian. If we think of the notes that are in the riff, the chords are only really being implied. Here, these, these, these are notes that are in the riff. I'm not going to play the riff because I don't want to deal with the copyright stuff. But if... That's, that's how the notes are moving, if we want to think of that as our, our canis firmus or our, our basic melody line. That's the main riff, but later on, we're going to have an alternate. It's going to go here. Whoa, that shift is pretty cool. 
I didn't hear that coming. It's pretty neat. The chorus is going to switch to Aeolian too because we're actually going to play an F major, G major to A minor here. So we're really living in the A minor uh, Aeolian there. But in the verse, it's like for a little while, it's a different mode that we're working out of. And I just, I thought that was really fresh when I heard it. And it's a real simple move, but it carries a lot of weight. It's not something I've heard a ton in pop songs. It just stuck out to me. Recently, I've been getting a lot of advertisements popping up on YouTube. Obviously, they're marketing to me as a musician. And I get a lot of uh, commercials for courses and uh, lessons to take. I'm always interested in hearing about the different ways that people teach or the ideas they want to share because I feel like everybody has a piece of the puzzle. And so the more people you can talk to or be exposed to is very positive. But one thing I think was coming up that I didn't think was positive were a growing number of advertisements. I know that this has always existed in this industry, but there are a growing number of at least advertisements on YouTube of people selling unrealistic promises and things such as like, you'll be playing a hundred songs in two weeks or learn fast and easy in no time at all. Or it just, I don't know, or giving the illusion that uh, you can be up and running in unrealistic time values. And I feel like that can disappoint a lot of people is sure there are like hundreds of songs that use four chords, but the amount of time it actually takes for you to develop playing those four chords is substantially longer than understanding that those songs use the same four chords. It takes 30 to 60 days to develop a habit. People hear that term and they kind of cringe thinking, I don't want bad habits, but there are good habits too, good and bad habits. And habit is also a term that we use for overlearned, meaning that it takes between 30 and 60 days to get to a point of learning something new where you don't have to think about it anymore. So say we're learning a new chord shape, a T7 shape. In theory, it could take in between 30 and 60 days, it's not an exact science and it depends a lot on you as a person and your experience playing instruments. But between 30 and 60 days, that's the amount of time it'll take for you to get to the point where you could just put your fingers in that D7 shape and not think about it so much and you don't have to walk yourself through it or struggle with it. So that alone is a lot longer than what some of these people are implying in some of these videos about being able to play really quickly. And I think that this is a marketing stunt. It's not rooted in a place of really helping you or assisting you in your process the best that you can. I feel as a teacher, one of the best things that can be done is to really assist you in the learning process. So it's not just about learning how to play a D7 chord. It's learning how you learn the D7 chord so you can apply that over and over again. So as a teacher, I'm giving you skills to forever be able to continue this process of growth because it never ends. And some instruments tend to be a little harder to get good sound out of at first than others. For instance, it's a little easier when you start playing piano for at least to sound somewhat decent. You can get your fingers in a position and you can play a G chord to a C chord and it, it you're not gonna get any buzzing strings or anything like that. But on, on guitar, playing a D to a C chord can 
kind of sound bad for a long time. Guitar is not an instant gratification instrument. I'm not saying that the piano is because every instrument is, is as difficult as the other one. And they just have different stages of, of, um, of, I'd say, their difficulty or some of them allow you to at least make more pleasing sounds at the beginning. The guitar is not necessarily a pleasing sound at first. So if somebody's promising you that in two weeks you'll be playing something and getting a clean sound of the guitar or not buzzing strings or playing your favorite songs in time and you're listening to this podcast, you're just starting out in your instrument or even been playing for a while, I would advise you to stay clear of, of people like that. I don't generally like to throw shade at uh, teachers. There are a lot of great teachers out there. They're not going to pull out used car salesman tactics to try to get you to buy their products. This kind of marketing just feels really spammy to me, almost like the old late night infomercials that we used to see. Does anybody remember the Floby? Some of you might remember this late night advertisement of this haircutting device that would connect to your vacuum and you can save hundreds of dollars a year. It probably even said thousands of dollars a year. I don't remember, but everything was so exaggerated on those, like with the Jinzu knives and uh, it, those commercials were so over the top, you know. Don't spend any money again on cutting your hair. Just connect this blade to your vacuum cleaner and put it on your head and it'll cut your hair. <laughs> That didn't really catch on, I think, probably for good reason. The same thing exists in the guitar world, though. I mean, the other day, there was essentially the equivalent of that on YouTube for a guitar of basically just saying, are you spending hours trying to learn the notes on your guitar neck? You know, and um, you're learning guitar wrong. You don't need to do that now. And 30 days, you'll be a master guitar player. <laughs> I might be exaggerating a little bit, but it was really something ridiculous like that, which... I've been playing guitar for actually, I'm not even sure how many years now, is it 30 years or so. And uh, I gotta say, there was really a no truth in what they were saying. It was highly exaggerated. I get the interest in trying to have the most efficient way of learning an instrument. And there's one thing I try to help my students with because I've spent a lot of years hitting my head against the wall or getting stuck. So I do try to curate the most efficient path to uh, to the destination. And I would also like to note that there is never really a permanent destination. We're always in a state of learning. And so one thing about learning music is you have to like learning because it just never stops. There's always more to expand and that's one of the joys of it is that you can always be surprised by things so just know that there is no way that somebody a teacher or a course or an online advertisement that's truly going to be able to give you a timeline of when you're going to be able to make something that sounds musical you know i can work with somebody and give them estimates about in theory how long it could take them to reach their next mile marker based on how often they're practicing and their experience so i can see that and i can say okay well probably the part you're working on right now or this song you're working on it's going to take maybe about this much time on the schedule that you're on, the time you have, and your experience level in order to execute that. But that's still not an exact science, and that does not apply to every single person that would be picking up the instrument. I'm just putting that out there because I do have a deep love for learning. 
I really enjoy studying with great teachers and, and I've seen a lot of really great tutorial videos. So there's people making great product and sharing great information. Just be conscious of people that are basically hustling and I think trying to just get your money and where you'd be disappointed with the product and the outcome. Forms tend to elude a lot of musicians for quite some time. This might be partly due to the fact that a lot of people just start learning riffs and just little small sections of songs because that's about all we can digest at first. It takes a long time. Sometimes musicians will just get caught in the trap of staying in that cycle. Even as their skills progress, they tend to only learn parts of songs, meaning maybe they just learn the first riff and the chorus riff and that's it. They don't play it from start to finish and include the intro and the bridge and the outro. So this presents some problems as a songwriter. If you're into composing and producing, it's really good to be able to zoom out and have an overview of the whole song, because if you can't, you're not really going to understand where the high point and the low point is of a song. So this means that there's a whole part of the storyline that you're not aware of. This makes it very difficult to sculpt the dynamics, to shape your intro and judge where it is compared to the bridge and compared to the outro. It also makes it difficult when you're doing jam sessions or if you're doing a gig and don't know the material very well to roll with the punches. So this past week I did a gig where I didn't know a lot of the material. I wasn't given a set list enough time before the show to really prepare much. So basically when I was on stage, I had to fake my way through it. One of the ways I did this was to have a pretty good knowledge of a lot of the general forms in the style of music that I was playing. Uh, you're going to find that every genre of music tends to have some forms that are associated with it. I would lump a lot of rock and folk music and pop music together with the style of forms. So I would think like pop music, rock music, everything that's happened from maybe the 50s, rock and roll, the invention of uh, R&B, rock and roll, blues, up to um, to a lot of the, the current pop music. And classical music has a lot of its own forms for its style of music. So a lot of the Baroque music, the classical period, they do have forms to it, just like rock music does. And just as a lot of uh, jazz music has their forms to it, there are a lot of repetitive forms that happen. One of the reasons you might want to know this is for me, like when I was on stage and I was playing a song I didn't know, I'm learning the song as I go, as I'm listening to the chords and figuring it out. I can make certain assessments of probably what's going to happen next. So after the, the first chorus, well, it's probably going to go back to a verse. After the second verse, it's probably going to go to a pre-chorus, if there's a pre-chorus in the song, another chorus, and likely a bridge. There may be a bridge in the song and then probably another chorus. So that's one way of looking at a, a pretty popular form in the pop era of music. It was a really good idea to listen to as many songs as you can and learn them all the way through. So if you're starting a song, learn the whole song and play through it and observe it and write it down. 
I tend to make a chart for every song I learn, A, to have it on record if I ever need to play it again, but B, just to analyze it, to understand a little more of what's under the hood and what makes it work. And the form is often an underappreciated part of what makes songs work. And as a producer or composer or musician, it's valuable to understand this. You'll be surprised at how repetitive a lot of forms are. And even in certain eras of classical music, they would repeat the same form over and over again. And the exposition in a lot of Baroque music was very identical of when it switched to the dominant key and went back to the tonic key. It, it, what changed was what people did with that and how they made that musical. It wasn't so much that every composition was radically different in its form. And you'll find this in, in a lot of pop music. You'll listen to the songs by the Beatles or you'll listen to songs by Lizzo. You're going to hear forms that happen over and over again. And so I would say it's a great idea to have a good handful of those in your back pocket from when you're getting together and jam with people so that you can start to predict or to anticipate what's happening. But not only that, if you're writing a song, you have a couple of different techniques that you can employ, or I should say like framework. There's framework that you can build your song around to make it work. And sometimes that can help you get through a song or a composition as opposed to a it just feeling like it's a through composition and, and nothing really isn't having any structure. So having a bit of a structure can really help your creativity sometimes and can help you in many situations, whether you're in an improvisation situation or trying to get through a gig that you don't know very well. I thought this week I'd take some time to talk about some of my favorite musical accessories. The first one I want to discuss is from a company called Barefoot Buttons. And these are buttons that you can put on your pedals and guitar, bass pedals, keyboard pedals. It's going to be great for anybody that's using pedals because what they do is they allow you to turn the pedals on and off much easier than with the standard foot switch. Now you don't have to replace anything on the pedal. They fit right over the switch. So barefoot buttons, they were initially created for players that wanted to play without wearing shoes. And you know, when you go to switch a pedal on and off, not wearing shoes, it's pretty uncomfortable. So to deal with that, barefoot buttons created these round buttons that you can put on the buttons using like Allen wrenches. Now I will say they make different sizes. So you do have to measure the buttons that are on your pedal so you can order the right ones. But they're fantastic, not only for when you're wearing socks or barefoot and you just switch pedals in your home, but also for when you're wearing shoes on stage, I have bad eyesight and sometimes it's a little challenging to aim and hit a pedal on and off and might miss it or it's um, it's challenging. So the barefoot buttons make it a lot easier for me wearing shoes or from wearing nice uh, boots like beetle boots that have a pointy tip on it. It just makes turning pedals on and off easier no matter what I'm wearing. But also if you're a person that puts pedals on top of your keyboards, so you have a Nord set up and you've got some pedals up there delay and uh, reverb or whatever you have, adjusting it by hand is so much easier too because of the flat surface that's wider. It's just a gentler experience when you have to turn your effects on and off as opposed to 
probably having to use your thumb or uh, uncomfortably pushing the button down without the barefoot buttons. So I would go to barefootbuttons.com and check out, uh, see if they make the buttons for your style of pedals that you're using. They make a button that fits most pedals. And I think it's probably one of my all-time favorite accessories that's been made for guitar. It just really has made life a lot easier. I, I keep buying them and I, every time I get a new pedal, I put one right on it because I, I consider them to be such an integral part of my workflow using pedals. Capos are an accessory that are underappreciated. There's a weird stigma around capos. I've heard some people refer to them as cheaters or they consider it a way of cutting corners with guitars. I don't see it that way at all. You can't make the guitar sound like it does when it's open if you're barring chords. It has a very different tonality to it. There's a certain uh, timbre that the instrument has when it's strung with open strings. The only way to really achieve this with say playing an A flat chord or an E flat chord is to use a capo. So yes, you can play it with your fingers and bar it, but it doesn't sound the same. It doesn't have the same presence or ring to it. So for this reason, I don't consider it a cheater at all. Most of the time that I'm using it, I'm using it for tonality. Now it does make phrasing easier for certain key signatures on the guitar. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you sit down and play piano, although there are some keys that are a little easier than others on piano, because the piano is laid out, it's a lot easier to jump through all the key signatures and, and be able to transpose and play riffs or chords in all 12 keys with more fluidity. The guitar, mandolin, they present some challenges when you have to play riffs in different keys because of the layout of the instrument. So capos also help in those situations to deal with some of the shortcomings that we're faced with using a guitar or mandolin, fretted instruments basically. Because I think there is somewhat of a stigma with capos Capos. There hasn't been enough discussion about the differences in the quality of capos. And this is important, I feel. Uh, I use capos. For instance, I had to use a lot of capos when I was on tour with Amy Helm. And I use actually capos when I play with Abby Almond too, more so when I was playing with uh, Amy Helm. But it was a regular part of the set every night. And so uh, I didn't have a guitar tech, so I was my own tech and so I was switching guitars between songs. It didn't give me a lot of time to switch uh, and check tunings. If, so a lot of times when you put like a Kaiser or a Dunlop capo on, it will mess with your tuning. The design of the capo actually tends to push your strings downward and make your tuning sharp, which is unfavorable. If you're using a Kaiser capo, you have to put it on and then check your tuning again because it almost always messes with it. Same can be said with the Dunlop. All the trigger capos, the Shub capos are better, but still, depending on where you place it on the guitar neck, you have to adjust the set screw so it has the right tension to hold it down. So none of these are really a great solution for when you have to do very fast changeovers if you're playing Broadway or if you're playing a set of songs with your band and you need to segue right from song to song. Basically, anything that you can't have a lot of downtime to using a trigger capo or a capo that's going to mess with the tuning of your guitar is really not going to be helpful to the situation. Luckily, there are two companies that have come out with designs that alleviate some of these tuning issues. Now, the first one is Thalia. 
They make a very nice capo that feels a little bit more geared toward the acoustic guitar. You could place it anywhere on the guitar neck and it'll keep the tuning, the intonation intact. It won't all of a sudden make your guitar sharp or flat. Now they use these removable inserts that you have to match with the radius of your guitar neck. Now the drawback to this is Obviously, because the insert is matched with the radius of the neck, you're not really going to be able to switch between different guitars as fluidly if they have different radiuses on them. So uh, the failure is really great if you're using one capo with one guitar all the time, in which case it's an awesome capo for that. The capo that I use that is more universal between multiple guitars is the G7 performance capo. This is a really amazing capo. This is my favorite capo because you can place it pretty much anywhere on the guitar neck. It comes on and off very quickly. The guitar is perfectly in tune. There have been times I've put it on and just been a little nervous about it, especially if I've been doing radio broadcasts or things of that nature. And I just wanted to double check the tuning even for a second. So I kick on my Sonic Research ST300 Mini Strobe Tuner, which is my favorite tuner because it's a true bypass, but also it's a fully analog signal. And the benefits of that are it doesn't have any lag to it. It's instant. It always knows what note you're playing. Sometimes you'll notice with some tuners, you'll hit a note and it'll be a little confused for a few seconds about what the pitch is. Well, the Sonic Research ST300 never does that. It just always exactly knows what note you're picking. And in a live situation, it makes it a lot quicker to check your tuning. I've done this using the G7th Performance Capo and every time the guitar has been right in tune. So it's really a fantastic capo and I think indispensable when you're playing gigs. I've heard too many people just put a Kaiser or a trigger type capo on and just start the song without checking their tuning and it kind of ruins the performance. I think no matter how long it feels like it's taking to tune on stage, it's always beneficial to take the time to tune to get your tuning right because it'll sound so much better to the audience. By using the right capo, you won't have to stress as much about your guitar going out of tune, aside from temperature differences where your guitar is adjusting from maybe the temperature outside to inside the venue. Groove Gear makes a product called Fret Wraps. For years, some guitar players and bassists have been using like hair ties to wrap around their guitar neck right about where the nut is near the tuners and over the strings a little bit to stop them from resonating when you're accidentally hitting open strings or getting close to certain harmonics on the guitar. Sometimes, I mean, you'll notice this if you've used a compressor or you're using distortion, it brings it out more, but sometimes when you're just playing an acoustic instrument, playing on certain frets and trying to meet the strings brings out harmonics. So for instance, if I'm playing here, you're hearing harmonics from me lightly touching the string in an area that there are uh, harmonics. So how do you deal with this, right? How do you eliminate that? Because you might not want that sound. Well, I use this fret wrap from Groove Gear, which is uh, has Velcro on it. So it's a little more flexible than using a hair tie, which are a lot harder to take on and off. And, and I basically wrap it over. It's a nice looking wrap that goes over the strings. And now, mm -hmm. 
it's nice and clean. It does affect a bit your open strings. It's not always ideal if you're playing a lot of open passages. And I use it a lot when I'm not playing a lot of open passages. If I'm playing something that's funky and I want the, the lines to be nice and clear. You up the guitar and makes the notes a little more defined without any overtones hanging over them. So I think it's a really a great device to use if you play a lot of funky stuff and use a lot of muted strings and single note lines, but works great for chords as well just to clean up overtones. I tend to use this a lot more in the studio than I do live, although it's great to have on your guitar live and pull in and out depending on what songs you're playing. I find it really important in the studio a lot because I really find I catch that stuff with microphones and it can live on in a recording. So it's nice to make sure that you can contain any of those weird overtones or harmonics that are happening if you don't want them there. This next accessory is for all of you out there who have Bigsby equipped guitars and know the frustration of needing to change a string on a gig or a session when you're under pressure. There's a company called Stringray, which makes a really great tool. It's a special clip for the Bigsby bridge that holds the strings in place. What's frustrating about the Bigsby is you have to take the ball end of a guitar string, get it on a post, which is underneath the bridge, wrap it around without the ball end coming off. You need to run it through and then you need to put it in the string post and get some tension on it all while making sure that you don't lose the ball land from the post that's underneath the Bigsby Bridge. So it's not easy to get to. It's not easy to keep it on the post until you get tension. Some guitar players over the years have used a pencil with a eraser on the other end and they wedge it under there so it doesn't come off. This is works, but it's not always the most consistent technique. I was really glad when I found this company. Again, if you go to Stringray, not like, kind of like Stingray, but not Stingray, but Stringray, you get this clip that attaches so easily to the bottom of the Bigsby's. As soon as you put a string on, you lock the string ray on, it connects, then you can run the string through wherever you need up into the string post to get some tension on it, then you can take it off and do it again. It actually allows you to change strings on a Bigsby equipped guitar quite quickly. Now I think I have three, I've got a baritone, a vintage guild, I've got a Telecaster with a Bigsby on it. And I remember the first time I broke a string on a gig and I didn't realize how hard it was to change strings on a Bigsby. And I was in the middle of a performance that was uh, frustrating because it obviously the more stressed out you get about it, the longer it seems to take things because you're panicking and not thinking clearly. Uh, it just was a very difficult situation. So sometimes I would choose which gig I would take the Bigsby guitar to because I didn't want that kind of stress. But when I got the string ray, it wasn't such a big deal changing strings. So even if I broke one in a set, it wasn't that hard. So I think it's a pretty important tool. And everybody that has a Bigsby equipped guitar should have one of these. And they're, they're pretty inexpensive too. And really, it's a little, it'll make your life a lot easier. Let's talk about strap locks. Now, I'm not really a big fan of strap locks. I've tried them throughout the years. Uh, I always have issues with the screw coming loose in, in the strap button and have to 
get some dowels and some wood glue to secure it. it seems to add weight in a weird way that can eventually strip out the wood. So I gravitated against them. Plus, I noticed that I was using the shaler strap locks and I was getting resonance through them. I can hear the guitar resonating through the metal connections on the body. And that was something I also just didn't like for whatever reason, my own personal preference. So I ended up taking them off. I didn't like the additional weight it added as well. But I didn't want to drop guitars on gigs. I wasn't doing anything crazy on stage or at home that I needed to super protect myself from it falling. But I did have guitars just drop out of my hands on the floor just because sometimes the strap comes loose and falls off. So you don't even have to be doing any crazy acrobatics moves to drop a guitar. This could be really scary with a Les Paul. Uh, there have been times on stage where I've dropped my Les Paul, but I caught it in my hands, luckily. That would have been a nightmare if it hit the ground. And luckily, I caught that. I did have a Stratocaster that just fell right off and neck first right into the, the hardwood floor. It survived, but led me to get strap locks first, and I tried those and wasn't happy. And what I settled on was just using, if anybody's familiar with Grolsch beer, there's a beer called Grolsch beer, which is from the Netherlands. It comes in a, 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 a what would you call it, a bottle? The rubber things, I think you call them grommets, but it's basically like a, a, a pop top, flip top bottle that you can reseal. And in that seal, there's like a red rubber washer that goes on there. And years ago, guitar players figured out that you can take those washers off of the beer bottles and then you can put your guitar strap on your guitar and put the red rubber washer over the the strap button and over the guitar strap. So it really prevents the guitar coming off. It does a wonderful job unless you're doing something crazy like flipping your guitar over your neck. I've never had an issue with the exception that sometimes some guitar straps, you get the leather ends and they're really thick. And in cases, some of them are hard to fit on there. So you don't want to get a strap with too thin of ends on it. You also don't want to get one that's too thick because it makes it harder to use the strap buttons. And I find that even with the thick straps that eventually they wear in and the leather gets soft and they have a tendency to come off. It might take a long time, but it can happen. So I like to find straps. I use air straps a lot from the UK. They're really nice guitar straps. And I can wear them in enough and I can fit them on the guitars and then put the, the gaskets on top of it or the, the rubber washers. Now, you see companies, I think Fender makes them now and they're putting them in a pack and they're charging a lot of money for like five or, or six washers. And you don't have to do that. I went on Amazon and I just, or I just Googled, first of all, like rubber washers for Grolsch bottles or beer bottles. A lot of home brewers use them. And I think I got like a, a hundred or more of them for like three or four bucks or something. Like I mean, for the amount that you would pay for one with a brand name on it, I got these. Now the difference was these only come in like this reddish orange color, whereas like the Fender ones you were able to get in black, but it's such a upcharge for that. So I always just use the red ones because I got so many of them and occasionally one will fall off and you have to replace them. And it's, uh, it's just, it seemed like more economical and it just seems silly to pay so much for so little when you can get them for more. So you can get them on Amazon or you just Google it and find them. But this is really a, a great accessory for anything that has a strap on it just to prevent it from coming off and give you a little bit more peace of mind. The only thing that they won't fit on is the old style acoustic guitar strap 
where they were larger. I'm seeing more and more companies have a dedicated jack on the guitar where the jack isn't right where also the strap connects on, which I'm grateful for because I just have nothing but problems with the jacks that go in to the same spot that your strap button is. Uh, it always it comes loose and wires get disconnected in the inside and twisted because it spins around. Real pain. So they, not only is it hard to get straps over that because they tend to be bigger than a traditional button, but it's also impossible to get the washer, the rubber washer over it as well. So it doesn't work in that situation, but most other situations, as long as your straps aren't too thick, it'll hold it on perfectly and you don't have to worry about your guitar taking a nosedive or uh, the body dive on the stage and cracking or getting messed up. Putting cymbals on cymbal stands on a gig is one of those areas that seems like it can take so much time on a gig, especially if there's a quick turnover and you don't really have a lot of time for a sound check. I always find that I'm, I'm fumbling with it and sometimes it's not coming off very easily or also there's felts missing. I always like to take my own felts and there's these quick release wing nuts that I use for cymbals that I think are fantastic. A friend of mine, Spencer Cohen, hit me to these. Basically you squeeze them and then it releases and you can take it off and then swap your cymbals in and out. So this could allow you to change your cymbals in a matter of seconds. So of course, you're gonna get there and have to take off the ones that are there, but I would spin off whatever ones are on the cymbal stands at the gig, take their felts off, which are probably incomplete anyway, Put them aside. You can even take a little bag with you so you don't lose them on a dark stage. Take a Ziploc bag. Take all their felts from their cymbal stands. Put them in a Ziploc bag. Put them in your bag temporarily, which you'll then replace when you're done with the gig and you put all your cymbal felts and your quick release wing nuts into that bag. You'll, you'll swap them back and forth. This way, you don't lose them so the venue doesn't get mad at you, but you can have nice cymbal felts on your cymbals. It even is a good idea to maybe have like the rubber washers that, that or the, the for the post, they're like uh, protectors for the post that will prevent metal to metal contact with the keyhole of your cymbals because I noticed that sometimes I end up in the gig and there's a crappy stand there and I'm riding on the cymbal and I know it's just having that metal to metal contact. So I think think about this a bit when I'm going to a session or a studio about just having a, a, a comfortable turnover with my cymbals and protecting them. Cymbal felts are pretty simple. And I think you can get like a pack of these quick release. The Tama makes them. Tama quick release cymbal wing nuts. They're like 24 bucks for four of them, which is enough for a gig. Most often, if you're playing a backline kit, you're not going to have more than four cymbals. They also make quick release Hi-hat clutches, another thing, and this is actually, a, here's a tip for other musicians out there. If you want to be a great bandmate and a hero, always have a cymbal clutch in your bag. As a guitarist or bassist, keyboardist, whatever I'm going to a gig and playing, I often have a cymbal clutch and a, a drum key in my bag because you just never know. If you're running a gig, you're the MD, might show up and the drummer might have a clutch, but it might not fit in that hi-hat or the venue said they have one and it's not there and the drummer doesn't have one. 
it is the drummer's responsibility to do it. Although occasionally something gets lost in the communication and you might find the drummer without a cymbal clutch. If you have that in a drum key, you can really save the day, especially if it's your gig. There are things that unfortunately happen to drummers on gigs all the time where they're promised things are going to be there and they're not there. It's always a bit of a gamble when you go to a venue and sometimes you'll see people on social media being like, hey, has anybody played this venue in the past week? And what's the situation of the drums? What do they have? Because they might tell you on the website they have stuff and you show up and they just don't have it. But as a drummer, the quick release hi-hat clutches are just a wonderful tool because that also allows you to get your hi-hats on quick and fast and make the the turnover a lot easier than dealing with uh, their clutch. But also you may have to occasionally use their clutch if they have a weird stand that isn't ha has a different diameter post, which I find annoying. I wish that everybody would just use the same size post and make it universal. It's kind of a jerk move to just make yours only specifically fit a certain size clutch. So you don't know when that's going to happen, but having uh, the uh, various quick release accessories for the drum kit to be able to put your cymbals on off allows you to sit down and start worrying about the drum tuning a lot sooner and kind of troubleshooting what you're, you're going to have to deal with with that drum kit for the gig as opposed to fiddling and worrying about your cymbals or not having any felts. I mean, sometimes I show up and there's no felts on the cymbal stand. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. So uh, try this on your next gig and see if it alleviates some anxiety for you. Oh, well, that's all for this week's look at accessories. In the future, I will be digging in and talking about more accessories that I use for the various aspects of making music. Thank you for joining me for Anatomy of Tone. I hope you'll join me next week. I'm going to leave you with a song from my band Fife and Drawn. It's called My Boo. It's a little bit of a comedic take on a Halloween song with some tongue-in-cheek windows in it. It's highly based off of some early 50s women blues artists such as Ruth Brown or Big Mama Thornton. Thank you.